0: I knew it'd be fascinating. Guy Shanshief, who founded Bambino Mio with his wife, Jo. They have created the biggest reusable nappy brand in the world. Oh my goodness. I couldn't believe some of the statistics that I had no idea about. Taking 300 years to degrade a single nappy. That in the UK, we throw away 3 billion nappies a year. I mean, this is unbelievable. What I love about this is in 1991, having a mission and a purpose and a thought, and in 2022, still going at it, where society is finally catching up with what we need to keep our planet safe. And there was Guy and Joe right at the forefront, hand in hand, leading the way. This is going to be a podcast talking about not only sticking to something, Changing the world, internationalisation, but ultimately committing to a vision to do good. It's just such a beautiful podcast.
1: Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down. Where we're going, you won't need to bring your frown.
0: I'm Holly Tucker, and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not On The High Street for my kitchen table, and since then, I've gone on to launch Holly & Co. I'm the UK ambassador of creative small businesses, and I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom, and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favorite small businesses, entrepreneurs, and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. With thanks to Adobe, who've helped bring this podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Hi Guy, what a pleasure to meet you. I am intrigued to have this conversation. Bambino Mio is the biggest reusable nappy brand in the world and your products are available in over 50 countries. I've never spoken about this subject before, but I know we're going to touch on so many interesting aspects for business. Welcome to Conversations of Inspiration.
2: Thank you and thanks for having me on.
0: Often we speak about founders finding their sort of entrepreneurial streak when they go back to their childhood. For me, it was sitting on the stairs creating travel agents because do you remember all the booklets you used to be able to get from travel agents? That, for me, was absolutely intoxicating. And I read when researching you for this podcast that you used to set up jumble sales and fruit and veg stalls when you were little. Did you always want to have a business?
2: Yes, I think from as early as I can remember... I'd always wanted to run a business. I remember... Aside from the examples you've given, I, when I used to sort of play as a child, it was offices I was setting up. I was um, yeah, sort of putting a desk there and a telephone on the desk. So um, we often joke that that running a business now, I'm sort of living my childhood dream from just that <laughs> that setting up offices, whereas many children had a much wider imagination. Mine was, mine was around offices. And as you say, there are lots of examples in my childhood. I remember, yeah, very young, sort of running a charity jumble sale, which was sort of before car boot sale. And and things like that, and and, and it went incredibly well. I'd, okay. The one thing I remember about that being very young is I'd managed to find somebody who would buy all the stuff afterwards. He came along and I was young and very, I mean, small. I was sort of, I don't know what I was, eight, nine years old and um, paid us very little money for what was left. And I think a lot of suppliers have suffered from that in my in later life <laughs> um, in terms of what was done on that day.
0: Uh, you, you have actually quite an exotic story of how the business first came about. It was in 1991. You were travelling the world with your now wife, Jo. And you had a chance conversation at the Taj Mahal. Can I ask, before you tell us about this moment in your life, how come you were travelling the world?
2: I had done a business studies degree at, at university. I did, a, I did a sandwich year with, uh, with Marks and Spencers, which was which a was great experience. And I'd sort of fallen into accountancy at the end of that degree and as you said at the outset i'd always wanted to run my own business and it was about trying to find something sort of finance was a, was a strength of mine my dad was an accountant my grandfather was an accountant and not that they were pushing me into it um and if anything dad could see that probably i wasn't the the best person for accountancy but it but it made sense so i went for training with kpmg was probably the worst accountancy trainee they'd ever had they didn't let me near any exams um <laughs> And Joe was Joe was working for Marks and Spencer's and uh, was made redundant and decided to um that she was gonna travel. It didn't, it had never been something I'd say I'd had friends do it and it, it some, I'd never been out of Europe. It wasn't something that, that that was a burning desire, but actually we just sort of fell into it and sort of from having the idea to leaving the uh, 30th of September 1991 was a month and and we found ourselves in India as the first place we were going. I mean we had no responsibilities no kids um yeah both of us weren't in jobs that we particularly enjoyed and 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 I think it would be right to say at that stage of my life, I was, I was searching for something. I was looking for something mm-hmm. um, and hope by being away. It was open-ended. We didn't know how long we were going to be away. We knew we'd spend some time in Asia and Australia and New Zealand. And um, yeah, literally within the first couple of weeks, we were in India. We went to the Taj Mahal. It was a night at the Taj Mahal where it's full moon. So there, was lot, there were lots and lots of people there. Yeah, I mean, I still remember it, actually. We, we, were, we were standing at the... Um, at what is a stone looking down to the Taj Mahal, which is sort of the classic view. And we just started talking to this guy from New York who started talking about diaper laundry services in, in the States and how they'd been very successful in the eighties. Um, and we had dinner with this guy and, and he kept talking. And then a few weeks later we were in Nepal and talking to a couple from Montreal and and the same subject came up. I can't remember now whether it was because the idea was starting to form in our minds. And they talked about the same thing in in, in Montreal. And then when we got to Australia in, in at the beginning of '92, uh, where we both worked to to get some more money for for our travels, I was cutting grass for Sydney Council, and we saw these. Lit- and I used to see the vans, the nappy laundry vans, shooting around. Um, around Sydney. And, and the idea just developed. We went, when we got to New Zealand, we went to see somebody who'd started a, a nappy laundry service there and had done very well. So we got back to the UK in the middle of 1992 and set up from our, we were able to with some savings by buy a small terraced house in the centre of Northampton. And from that house started a, uh, a nappy laundry service to start with.
0: Well, with Holly & Co just recently, we just started to think about our future. and We've landed on a few real sort of um, things that we're going to keep with forevermore. And since that moment, when we look out in the world, we keep seeing examples of things almost reassuring us that we're on the right path. Do you feel that that happens? Because if you think about it, you're travelling around. I didn't think you maybe thought that you should be talking about nappies Mm. on your travels. And yet there you are talking, seeing, and suddenly you're witnessing. And do you feel that that happens to founders when they come up with an idea?
2: There must have been something because to start a company involved in in washable nappies, reusable nappies in the early 90s, To anybody who stood away from that, and we did hear it lots and lots of times, we must have been mad because people would say, well, disposables, everyone's gone to disposables now. That's the future. We won't need to wash nappies anymore. They'll just get thrown away. And there was that general move in society to moving away. So there must have been something that actually was sinking in thinking this is right because Mm. yeah, why would you have done it?
0: Yeah, I, I believe the universe does conspire at certain points in our lives and helps us maybe into what um we should be doing. So you set up this nappy laundry service. And I, I think in this early 90s, as you were just saying, you know, people were yes, absolutely thinking you're nuts. But at the same time, there was also people understanding a tiny bit more about sustainability. And there was certainly the the awareness though. It wasn't as it is today by any means, but the business was like all great businesses, I think. Guy from the kitchen table, tell me how you convince people the benefits of this because it sounds like a lot of hard work. I know you went to antenatal classes. I'm wondering if you were laughed out of them slightly. But I love it when a founder has an idea that it's almost the juxtaposition of what do you know what I mean the the average person. I actually think that could be the winning formula for people. It's when it isn't totally obvious.
2: And I, yeah, and I, I agree with you. I think there's lots of examples of that. Yet, yeah, you really did feel that you were suggesting something that, that was mad to a lot of people. As you mentioned, you'd go to, I remember going to an antelope class literally within the first few weeks of starting the business. I actually got asked at it, how many customers did we have at that point? I think we had four. Um, <laughs> and but, they were your neighbours. Yeah, which just, was just <laughs> feels so, so so silly looking back people did think we were mad i mean i often describe it as sort of people looking at you you've just stepped up a spaceship and i know we used to in those early days do some um i mean even a few years later and even once bambino mio started where we would do um consumer shows where there'd be lots of pregnant people walking around looking at products looking and even then um, in the late 90s people still couldn't get their heads around it i mean people coming out and saying what a weird idea why would anybody ever want to do this I think, and I know we 'll talk about it later, but I think the contrast is just and you think back now, the contrast between those times and these times is so dramatic mm. in, uh, at, at so many levels, so yeah, those early days were were really really tough, and of course with a with a nappy laundry service you 're a niche of a niche because there's a number of reasons why people buy reusables yes environment and, and waste and um, raw material usage very important but cost is really really big for parents because you can save one and a half thousand pounds during during the baby's time in nappies. and that when we talk to customers that's a really important to a lot of parents and especially the times we're living in we're living in now but you don't get that with a laundry service because you're paying a, a laundry fee so the cost is sort of fairly level with with um with disposables at that stage. So we were trying to push a niche of a niche, but I think the grounding that gave us was even though we did we we ran the nappy service for sort of four or five years and then stopped what it was meaning is we were coming face to face with customers every single day and with a laundry service if you don't get on with it you just stop so that income stream stops yeah yeah it never it never properly scaled we probably the most low few hundred customers and we were we were driving our little van around to pick up dirty nappies and deliver clean nappies but in terms of understanding really understanding why people wanted to you, what motivated them to use reusable nappies? What worked and what didn't work? What people were looking for? It was a really important grounding that then helped us as we, as we sort of stopped the nappy service and started selling the product through Bambina Mia.
0: You, got, you almost got this instant feedback from maybe your harshest, definitely, you know, and, and, and sometimes, well, sometimes all the time, isn't it brilliant to get that feedback and how we feel about feedback, et cetera, et cetera. And it's certainly when you have your own business, it's very personal. You feel it's very personal, but actually these are nuggets of gold. And if you can take as much of it as you can, and then twist it and turn it like you did, why were you so convinced When people come up with their ideas, why were you, though, for those dark days, which I'm sure you absolutely had? You come out these anti-native classes. I think you were charging seven, eight pounds a pickup or something. You know, how many of seven, eight pounds do you need to pick up in order to build a business? There must have been these moments you turned to Joe and just thought, oh my goodness, really? Really, is this what our future is? How did you as a founder know that this? Was the right move um
2: well, I don't think I did, and I think there were lots of times in those early days when you th- I thought to myself, i mean if you go back to my childhood and what and I wanted this business and i I had in my head to me what a business was and the size it needed yeah. to be to be a proper business, if you like, rather than just Joe and I i mean in happy Service States we did start in, it, sort of employing a, a couple of people for driving and delivery, but essentially it was just it was just us. And there were lots of times where I thought, how is this ever going to scale? How are we actually going to mm. do this? I don't think we ever lost and have never lost our belief in the product and what we're doing and why we're doing it. To us, it's always seemed a sort of no-brainer in terms of this is the way that, that we have to go. It may, t- may have taken the world a long time to sort of catch up with us, but we're, we're seeing that now. So I don't think we ever lost that belief in the in the product and what we're doing. For me, it was about, yeah, not being able to see that leap in terms of, of how it got scaled. And I think that was reflected sort of in our in our decision to, which was sort of taken out of our hands, really, but to stop the nappy laundry service and move to mm-hmm. to Bambino Mio, because that, obviously that was the way to scale. There were lots of benefits. That was the move. But yeah, there were lots of times in terms of how do we navigate? How do we get to where we want to go? and And let's keep going but actually so, so so we never sort of questioned that for me, it was about how do we get there how do we how do we how do we navigate this
0: the setup the the makeup of that yes. drive, you know so isn't that that classic thing they say about entrepreneurs? you know that we're able to take the knock and slightly fail, but then we take what we've learned and repackage it again and try it again, and that's slightly what you did you 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 knew that you needed to move this this mission that you're on forward. You absolutely started Bambino Mio because of those learnings. I remember talking to Paul um, Lindley, founder of Ella's Kitchen, and this idea of having this higher purpose and how important it is to founders, like get you out of bed on those bad days be able to take the criticism, uh, be able to fold up one company and, and open up another, really, you know, for Paul, was to encourage healthy eating habits in our children. Yours is to make positive impact on the world through a product that is used day in, day out by millions, billions of people worldwide. Do you think having purpose-driven business has not only kept you going, but it allowed you to help other people outside of nappies, for instance, because I know you have a social enterprise um, helping a chain of small islands in the South Pacific and you're supporting them as disposable nappies are banned there. Is that important to you to have these missions that you can now go on?
2: Yeah, I think it, it's always been for me, bigger than Bambino Mia. It's all, I mean, our mission when we first started, we've refined it a little bit in terms of definition over the last little while, but essentially it's still the same. In the early days, it was to make reusable nappies commercially acceptable worldwide. In other words, when we started, what reusable nappies meant to parents were a packet of old-fashioned terry nappies collecting dust at the back of a small baby shop. But actually, we always felt that if you brought that into the 20th century 21st century now um, in terms of the way you operate in business in terms of the all elements of the business I'm not just talking about having great products that people want to use that work really really well but the whole business and remember the great thing about operating in the baby market is you've got new people coming to that all the time and a lot of those people coming to the market have no information about it so they have a short period of time in which to learn take learnings from other parents. It's why in the baby industry I've always felt that brand is really important. It's why awards and endorsements and if we bring it up to where we are now, influencers uh, who seem to have taken over sort of from midwives and, and close family in terms of giving advice. But during that period of time it is possible to to change people's attitudes and learnings. And so uh, we were able to do that uh, and we have been able to do that that over time. But it's always been about for me, that bigger purpose of getting people to use reusable nappies. So, if we can do that as a business, we then need to be geared up to fill that gap as the market expands. But for me, it's and 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 for for a lot of people and the majority that that work at Bambino Mio it's that bigger purpose and and i think there's there's two or three examples of that which i can give you you touched on vanuatu which is the the islands Thank just goodness
0: off, you said Aust- that cuz i <laughs> saw how i just missed out the name of it. Yes, say it again, Vanuatu.
2: Vanuatu. Yep. Um so Vanuatu's small islands off off the Australian coast they announced a ban on single use plastics uh, two or three years ago. And as part of that, they announced a ban on disposable nappies. Now we don't actually advocate a ban and, and we can maybe talk, talk about that later, but they did announce a ban. And quite naturally there was a big backlash from parents in, in Vanuatu about that. And you have to remember with Vanuatu, it's, it's small islands. Many of the outlying islands don't have running water, don't have electricity. Mm-hmm. So there was a big backlash, but we started working with a cooperative out there, uh, Mama's Life, who were making, already making reusable nappies in a really small, small way, partly to help them scale up, but more importantly to, because with reusables, it's not, reusable nappies, it's not about taxing. It's not about banning. It's about education. So actually we, we funded a project out there following the reversal of the ban on nappies by the government because of the backlash to actually get out into the community, show parents what these products look like, give some, uh, give some information. And that report came back showing that 80% of people in Vanuatu bought into it. Wow. And, and actually, what I've realised over the last few years as we, we've grown and being able to get out to places like Vanuatu, Vanuatu, it has one municipal waste dump on the, on the main island. And it's not like the UK where a, a rubbish lorry turns out once a week to pick up your rubbish. If you're out in the islands and you have single-use products, there is nothing you can do with it. You can burn it. Or in the case of nappies, they bury them on the beach and they get washed out to sea.
0: Yeah.
2: And you have to bear in mind that 20... And they don't, they're not a wasteful society. So 20... As, as nappies, disposable nappies have been introduced in the last 10, 15 years, 27% of all their waste is just disposable nappies, which is why the 20th biggest item found in o- waste in, in oceans is nappies. And it's a big, big issue. And if anything, over the last few years, I have become more passionate about it because you look at a place like Vanuatu, and this is going on throughout the world, and you have big corporations pushing single-use products into countries who have no infrastructure whatsoever to get rid of them. And these companies are taking no responsibility for it whatsoever.
0: Gosh, I knew I was going to learn so much. (laughs) I was speaking to Katie Emke from Fine Cell Works about the prison system. I found that podcast so fascinating because I hadn't thought about the prison system. It wasn't something I was daily thinking about, such as my son is 17 and I'm not thinking about nappies. But it is absolutely unbelievable that we do not know those t- statistics such as i think um when looking at your website which is fantastically informative um it takes 300 years to break down a nappy is that right and yeah there's 3 billion is it 3 billion nappies are thrown away each year?
2: In, I'll, I'll throw out my few stats now. Go on. Do, I, I, we call
0: them sexy stats <laughs> at Holly & Co. We love, we love a good stat.
2: So I'll quickly go through these. 1% of all plastic in the world goes into making single-use nappies. So, and the production of plastic, obviously, that's, um, there's implications with carbon emissions and oil and, and all sorts of things. But 1% of all plastic production makes single-use nappy. Globally, 90 billion nappies are thrown away every year. Reusable nappies use 98% fewer raw materials and generate 99% less waste. The other side of it, which is is resource use, because obviously disposables are using a lot of natural resource and resource use. Again,
0: what's something you don't think about at all?
2: No. And resource use is responsible for 90% of biodiversity loss and 50% of carbon emissions in the uk as you say it's three bit 3.6 billion disposable nappies are thrown away every year but if you look at the 3.6 billion nappies that compares to only 1.1 billion single-use plates two and a half billion coffee cups but as i say the disposable nappies at 3.6 and it is far more bulky so as a society and as a country we're addressing single-use yeah uh, plates we're not- addressing coffee cups but we're not addressing so just in terms of Coming back to your question about sort of the bigger purpose, uh, twenty years ago I, I, I worked with with a number of our competitors to set up a trade organisation. We were still the industry was still really small in two thousand and three, but obviously we were getting profile. But I felt quite strongly that we had to be part of this debate because it was a, it's a significant part of the waste stream. But you don't have children in nappies, but you're still paying part of the 140 million pounds it costs local authorities every year to get rid of yes. disposable nappies so you're still paying for them even though you don't yeah. have have use of them so yeah the nappy alliance we set up uh, in 2003 to make sure that we engaged with government that the nappy issue wasn't wasn't forgotten and we worked really hard i mean for the first few years we'd have brilliant meetings with politicians they'd acknowledge what we were doing but they couldn't really get their head around it they might write the odd letter yeah i mean a particular high point for me having done that that for 20 years was last year. They were debating the Environment Bill in the House of Commons where they had various days to debate it. And I remember in one of these sessions, bearing in mind how wide the Environment Bill is, everything from, from waste to biodiversity to nuclear energy. To, I mean, there's so many parts of the, of the Environment Bill. Yes. Out of, I think, 40 people who spoke, Four of them spoke purely about the nappy issue, which was great. And we had the same thing when the, when the bill went to the House of Lords as well. So we have good political support, both in the UK and, and further afield. And I think talking about those other single-use products, there's certainly a feeling here, and I think wider, that as a society, we are moving through the products. So we've, we, I won't say we've totally addressed, but obviously we've made a big impact in terms of supermarket bags, plastic bags that are thrown away, plates, coffee cups. Nappies really feel like the next big thing. I, I, I chaired a meeting for, so the United Nations Environment Programme produced a report last year recommending that governments promote reusable nappies. Zero Waste Europe, a quite influential body, produced a report that showed how much nappies and education around nappies and encouraging people to use reusable nappies aligns with so many governments in Europe um, environment policy. Mm. So you do feel that a change is coming.
0: It feels like that, doesn't it? You can feel that undercurrent, the noise, the, the awareness. It, if you think about when you started, the difference is monumental. Let's just go back to you as a founder, though. In those early days of the business, and it's easy to forget, isn't it, when we build businesses pre-internet and using lovely things, catalogs mail order. And I read that that's how you started. And initially it was very slow to take off. Take us back to those days.
2: As I say, the nappy laundry service, we finished with the laundry service and we were being asked more and more to buy. Could people buy the products to wash at home? Because modern washing machines, people realized it was, it was, is actually not that difficult. Um, so we started by placing, um, small adverts in the, um, in the back of baby magazines while we were still running the, the laundry service. And, and in those days, a very different world. No internet, brochures sent out by post, order forms sent back with a check. Yes. So, um, yes, it was, um, it was, it was a very different world. And there were, a proliferation of baby magazines in those days. That people, mother and baby, I think had a circulation of nearing one hundred and fifty thousand copies a month.
0: Yeah. Um,
2: so yeah, it was a it was a it was a very different world. So we had lots of interest. Junior then. magazine. Junior was magazine, mother and baby, angels and
0: urchins, pregnancy
2: magazine. There, there was a huge number. Yeah. Huge number. What actually happened was in terms of bambino and mio and how we got going. So we didn't really have a name to do the mail order company in those days. We were supplying some of the products because the product, the core product range is quite similar now to what it was then swim nappies, training pants. Uh, the nappies themselves we obviously bought in others but essentially the products themselves were the same and we were at that time not making them we were we were importing them we were distributors for a u.s brand we were working with somebody in milton Keynes, actually who i knew from nappy service days who had written a brochure which she titled bambina mia titled the company bambina mia uh, and was buying this product but i had a conversation with her and she said "Look, i've done this brochure i have a selection of of products uh, reusable nappy products but actually i want to move to yorkshire and and horses is my passion and everything else and i said well we haven't got a name for this company that we're going to sell mail order. Why don't you close the company down? We'll buy all your stock. We'll change the name of our company to Bambino Mia, which means we can avoid throwing away the ten thousand brochures that you've just printed. Yeah, and that's what happened. Um, so actually, we inherited the name Bambino Mia, which is I mean has, has has held us in such good stead. It was actually yes. Gillian who started that company. She named the um, she named the company after a drama, which you can still. See online, I think, with Julie Walters, called Bambino Mio, that had gone out in the eighties about adopting children from the old, um, East, old Eastern Bloc country. And she'd been quite moved by this film. And, um, and that's why she called the company Bambino Mio. And then we sort of inherited, there was no great thought to it. There was no big marketing agency sitting down with people around the table going, what should we call this company? <laughs> um, and, and that's how Bambino Mio came about. So. Yeah, we were still operating from home. Uh, we used to store the... We had a small cellar where we, we stored the products and it was so much easier than an nappy service. We'd watch the postman walk down the road of a row of terraced houses, post the letters through the door and there'd be a, two or three order forms on there.
0: That must have felt
2: good. It did. It, oh, yes. And, and we'd, we'd then get the order packed up. I'd go to the bank with the checks and get it sent off. And then in the evenings, parcel force would turn up, knock on our front door... Where we'd have one or two boxes which i i texted joe the other day as i left the office because i looked down at our warehouse and there was a dpd articulated lorry reversed to our warehouse collecting orders and i said do you remember when it was just the parcel force man knocking on the door and there was just two parcels in wow. there but it, again it was it was slow but what we found is after that first year there was this was, this was 98 there was something changing there was more interest. And so we launched, we, we got some packaging together and started selling in independent baby shops as well and started getting some traction from that. And so we, we were starting to see some momentum there.
0: And did you literally go and knock on doors, go out to those independents yourself?
2: Yes, we did. We did, we did a small stand that there was a big, there was a trade show uh, in London for the, for the nursery industry and we set up a stand there. I remember somebody advising me, right, this is your first time. And obviously there was no one selling reusable nappies. Yep. so again we with the trade you were you trying were to build.
0: it's like aliens there
2: you were and, and the weird thing was we were trying to build not only a company but we were trying to create a category because yes. there was no there wasn't a reusable happy category and we had this problem when you talk and we, we've only until recently that you still had it but you talked to bigger store groups so the first uh, national account we got was babies are us and of course they didn't they didn't no one knew where this category sat is it a clothing category does it sit with the nappy buyer so actually they just kept passing around so that made it more difficult so yes you were trying to create not only a brand but you were trying to create a um, a category as well and I remember people saying to me this is your first show you'll be seen here this time people will show more interest the second year and it's the third year where you'll really start selling to the trade and I thought no 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 no. we'll do this we'll do this from day one we're going to do loads and loads of work. but of course they were right it was the third year when we started to do it but yet we started to create that category
0: As you know, I'm passionate about celebrating small businesses and championing creativity within all of us. That's why I'm thrilled to be working with Adobe Express, who each week are handing over their ad break to a small business founder, shining a light on their own businesses and sharing how Adobe Express
1: really is helping fuel their creativity. Hello, I'm Jess, and I'm the founder of Richmond Bakes, I launched my business in lockdown in 2020 as a side hustle to my full time job as a digital manager. I have a real passion for baking, and I really didn't expect for that passion to take off in the way that it has. Launching my own business has been a real learning curve, and Richmond Bakes has gone from strength to strength, so much so that I recently started a new job to allow me the flexibility to focus on growing the business even more. In my day job as a digital manager, I've always been a huge Adobe fan. Last week, I took the next step with Richmond Bakes and attended my first market, where I was able to meet customers face-to-face. Of course, the first thing I had to do to prepare for this was to create branding and leaflets for my stall, and if I'm honest, despite my technical background, I didn't really know where to start creatively. So for the first time, I used Adobe Express, and I can't believe how easy it was to use. In a few short clicks, I was able to bring Richmond Bakes to life on flyers, leaflets and signage. And even though I was using templates, I was easily able to keep everything on brand to my business. You'll be pleased to know that my store was a huge success and I pretty much sold out. The flyers I created were really popular and I've already seen new customers to my website who are using the welcome offer that I featured on them. Not only am I looking forward to more successful market days, but also seeing how I can use Adobe Express to improve my website and my social media content. I've already redesigned my invoices too. If you'd like to follow my journey with Richmond Bakes, you can find out more on richmondbakes.co.uk or follow me on Instagram at richmond underscore bakes.
0: Thank you once more to Adobe, who have helped to make this podcast episode happen. If you want to find out more about Adobe Express and how it can help your business, head over to adobe.com go slash Now let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. It's worth noting, isn't it, sometimes with these wildest of dreams, you know, you get it as the founder and those around you, but actually you were a niche of a niche. People hadn't seen it. You were having to do industry education. I know certainly with Not On The High Street, you know, it was small businesses understood, well, Amazon sold books at the time. And, you know, had eBay, sort of like your grandmother's birthday present pair of socks on your bed. And it was like Socks123 was the product name. And it was just completely, but we had to go out there and talk to small businesses. This is a new way of doing it. This is, and actually teach them about the internet. You know, a lot of conversations I had was, do I need a computer and a printer to be on, not on the com. And so, actually, that's very hidden, isn't it, to normal people? It's actually, you've got a lot of education going on in the background. I'm interested to talk to you because it's not something necessarily, and certainly with Brexit and the issues that that's caused, talking about your ambitions because you actually scaled the business exporting as well, recognising that you would only be a certain size in the UK, there's only a certain amount of nappies that were bought be interesting just to talk to people who might have that ambition to look outside of the UK, how to get out there? Because I know you slightly went full circle.
2: Yes. Yeah, so we, as you, as you rightly say, the, the, the baby market's a finite market. As a brand, you sort of get two choices. One is, do you start sticking your name on your brand on loads and loads of different baby products so the people who are buying from you buy more yeah or do you look for new markets and we definitely made the choice of new markets because we want to be category leader we want to be seen as being experts for reusable nappies and so therefore exports seemed the seemed the way to go big trade show in germany as you said you rightly said first spanish distributors we met with we met with them tried things out i think i mean just as, as a side point, and you, you touch on Brexit, I think it's one of the most disappointing elements of many about Brexit, um, is that the European market was how companies like ours were able to cut their teeth on exports. And mm-hmm. um, it's, it was accessible. It was, it was good to go and meet customers. Uh, culturally, we're very aligned. It was easy. To do business in Europe. And I think companies like ours would not have got the confidence or the traction, bearing in mind that nearly 80% pre Brexit, and it, we've managed to navigate it, and that everybody here everybody in the company has done amazing work to keep that all going and continue to grow it the effect on brexit for we would never have got to the sort of 70 80 percent of our businesses being exported yep. had we not been able to cut our teeth on what was a relatively easy market to work with so yeah we started with spanish distributors uh we grew that we went back to um we kept going back to the trade show and we always have every year apart from sort of the covid years and we went back the following year and then we did a bit of research that year we sort of specifically targeted countries and got people to the stand who we thought might be interested but it was back creating that category no one was creating that category so it was educating about the category not just the brand and we got we went back targeting about five ten countries and we got interest from about 40 countries and appointed our first 10 distributors Wow! which for a small business was a brilliant way of doing it in those early days because distributors bought the products from you they had the contacts. Obviously, the internet was, was not particularly advanced. So it's still personal contacts that those distributors had with independent baby shops, because we were starting again from the independent baby shop level, PR. Just generally, they knew that market. And as a small business, we we, there's no way we would be able to reach that directly. And we built up that network of distributors to probably over 30 distributors, everywhere from, from the US, Mauritius, Australia, New Zealand, right around the world. I always think of those days as we were still in that startup mentality. So, our distributor in Malta probably got as much care and attention as our distributor in the US. Right, yeah. And actually, the other thing you've got to do, we, we really had to do, and I don't, I think this is, le- I'd like to think this has left me now. Because of where we'd come from and, and, and starting completely from scratch, we were just grateful people wanted to buy our products. Yes. It didn't really matter where they were or who they were. We just wanted to get the fact that orders would come in. And I think that goes back to those early days where you're fighting for every single order. That mentality was still there. And I th- and so over time, we worked with these distributors. And with those distributors, and we're talking 2008, 2009 now, 50% of our business was export through this network of distributors. 50% was UK. But we hit a plateau of a sort of 2 million pound business. And that carried on for two or three years. And I always, looking back and I know a lot of people talk about this, and it's certainly true in our business, this sort of three stages of business where uh, you have the initial part where you're just grateful people want to buy your product. The next stage is, how, can you scale that? It's all very well setting up a business and you can, you can sell to people and you employ a few people, but actually, especially for us with, with our purpose and what we want to do, to really have an impact, we needed to scale. So could you scale? And I think what actually happened that, that forced us to do that... Is that in 2010, our two biggest distributors, US and France, who represented over a third of our business, both had issues in their, in their own businesses with other brands. So they stopped buying from us. It wasn't a Bambino Mia thing. It's lots of great things about distributors when you're that size of business. What, one thing you don't have is huge transparency on, that, on their business model. Yeah. So if things change for them, you can find it changing very quickly. So we lost a third of turnover.
0: And I read it was almost like overnight that you, you lost this.
2: Yeah within the space of about, of about three or four weeks. Ironically, it was the worst of times. And it was when I was awarded my MBE, actually. So I got, I had all this, Going on with oh well let's celebrate (laughs) because you got the MBA and it happened at the new year and you're like
0: hang on a minute yeah and it was (laughs) the imposter syndrome was right there
2: totally (laughs) totally it was something that it was a strange time from that point of view and it had never happened before and I and I think we took the attitude certainly in the uh, straight after it happened as you say it happened quite quickly of well business is going to come back it always has so let's just keep on doing what we've always done and it will come back and it didn't and the the following year sales fell so we'd gone from that two million. In the space of 12 months, we were, we, our turnover was down to a million. We had to make redundancies. The business model had to change. But, and it's a cliche to say it, those challenging times turn out to be the most important times. Because actually what it meant is we looked at the strategy. We stopped working with distributors and started working direct. We started that in, um, so Germany was the first place we did that, where we employed a German national in our office to follow the marketing strategy because the, um, digital marketing was coming through and we had a model in the UK, we'd developed over this time, a model in the UK, decent website, decent email marketing, social media, influencers, working with other websites, all the stuff that everybody now does. Mm-hmm. But it was new at that time and we'd seen the opportunity for that. And in Baby especially, the change and the move to digital and move online was fairly dramatic because you suddenly those people who'd come up through school and university doing everything online, was suddenly having babies. Yes. So actually so the, the change was, was even more dramatic. So we'd seen the success in the UK and thought, well, could we do this internationally? And it was clear we couldn't do that through distributors because then you're one, one removed from it. So in Germany, we, we started following that model in Germany with a German national in our office, while our sales people, who, who are our head of export, happened to be half German, which was handy. But she started selling then to independents.
0: I read it went from 1 million to 10 million in 5 years that actually taking it in-house so to speak you were able to almost do something that you maybe had always outsourced
2: that's right and it it was dramatic i remember our and we, we split with distributors fairly amicably because uh, for them the model wasn't working so well so our german distributor said to us your product will never work in germany it's not right for the market Literally within days of us starting doing it ourselves, the first order we got from an independent store was of greater value than he had ordered for the whole of the previous 12 months. As of last year, Germany is our biggest market in the world.
0: Isn't that interesting? Before I ask about your third, because you said there's three stages, you know, you have that initial stage, then the can you scale? I want to ask you about that third. But isn't it interesting when we think about naysayers and we think about how we can take information and almost have it as gospel. And it sort of deters you from trying it. It's really for those who are brave to go and just do it yourself. Just go and test that. See if that is actually fact. Imagine if you had listened to that. Imagine if you'd actually just stopped what that would have done to your business. So it's, it's really have the courage. It's not to be arrogant in a way, but it is just to go and Find these things out for yourself. And I read a quote as well when talking about this is crises are good for a company. You know, they force you to take a step back and reassess. And that's exactly what you've done in my career. Similarly, you know, it is the worst of times that ultimately cause the correct actions. And, you know, you look back and you go, God, I actually wouldn't want to have that again. But thank goodness for those moments. Do you remember what the third is of those three stages?
2: Yes, yeah, so the third stage is, is one. And I think that's what we were able to do after that period. And when we, So, so we, did, we, we did it in Germany, but we subsequently did it in other countries as well. Nationals of that country selling direct to retailers. And in the German example, we... We're now working with all the major supermarkets and, and, and pharmacies, as well as sort of very successful website in Germany that we have and, and selling through, through Amazon as well. So I think once you've proved you can scale, the third part for any business is sort of more of the same because you're actually building on what you've already established. People said to me in those very early days, that third stage is actually in some ways the easiest. It's the first stage that's the most difficult for any business to get out there and prove that you can sell your product. Next actually can you scale that but then it is more of the same the numbers of course are much much bigger Mm. but actually you're doing more of the same i think over the last little while the other bit that i've realized is that when you go between the stages you do need to be big changes one thing as a business we've gone through recently is that i suppose having started a business from scratch what you tend to do is you build on the foundations that you started and keep working the same way the danger of that is everything gets quite complex. Mm -hmm. It can move your focus and you have to, you can build to a certain extent, but at some point, if you really want to scale and we have big ambition, if you really want to scale, you've got to make a transformational change in terms of the way your business is structured, the facilities that you've got and everything else. You can't just keep building all the time. There are points where you need to make big changes.
0: I find that fascinating and what great advice. Almost... The way you started absolutely matters and can be part of your history and can be called upon. But it doesn't necessarily mean it's the actual operational foundation of your scale. And that's really good to know. And it's really refreshing. You're sold in over 50 countries worldwide. I think your exporting business is generating 70% of your revenues it's just remarkable. And would you recommend, I spoke to Donna Wilson on this podcast and she first found her success as a creative business in Japan. And then after Japan, it was the UK and she's, and she's British. For businesses listening or those thinking about how to scale their business, would you recommend New Territories?
2: New Territories has worked for us up till now. As I talked, as I mentioned just now, You go through certain stages where you assess the operation of your business. And I think one thing we've realized is, um, which is important for us, is focus. 75% of our sales come from Germany, France and, um, and the UK. We've been able to take a step back and say, actually, we need to be focused on those markets to make sure that we are doing them the best that we can. I think it depends on the stage of business that you're in. Mm-hmm. The figures are now obvious to us that those are our key strong markets and we need to make sure that we're really, we're seen as market leaders in, in Germany. France is a, is a tough market. Everybody, I think, whatever industry you're it's a lot of people talk about France being a tough market, but we're, we're doing well there and, and UK home market. We've always done well here as well. So I think it depends on your stage of development. As you say, we've, we've sold in lots and lots of markets. You could, despite the, the focus that we now have on these other markets, that doesn't mean we're not doing well yeah. in other markets, but it's actually where you put finite resource and going out in those early days to, to lots and lots of markets does let you see those opportunities by just going out and do it rather than talking about it. We didn't do a lot of, um, in those early days analysis of right, where's the, right birth rate, level of income, any sort of analysis. It was just sort of get out there, sell the product, let's see where it works. But I think, as I said earlier, it's, those, it's making sure that every so often in terms of the, the way your business moves forward, you do actually take that time to step away and say, right, what is right for us now? And what is right for us now is to concentrate on those markets where we're strongest to make sure that we're mm. reaching as many people as possible because we've sort of done – some of the work in terms of reaching a good percentage and we're doing well and it's growing well. But let's make sure that we don't dilute it so much by going all over the world.
0: And it must be also just fascinating as founder, you know, to experience, you know, you're looking at me with this huge map behind me. You know, the world is a most glorious place and your business is, you know, seeped in a mission and a purpose as much as it is you're selling a product. I think great advice about the thoughts of just getting out there. You know, when I think back to my own career and the analysis that went into internationalizing, and of course, it, you know, it, there's nothing simple about internationalizing, but at the same time, you can have a gazillion pieces of analysis and data. But ultimately, you know, you also have a great gut instinct to where your products would travel well to, a similar culture, something that, you know, all these sorts of things. So I think it's great advice just to get out there and just try it and see what happens. I'd love to ask you, in terms of your actual culture of your business, I know you've got a very strong culture and it's something that has made an enormous difference Holly & Co, our culture is all united with helping the small business community. It glues us all together. And again, I think this is some of your core values shine through. Is this something that you feel very strongly about? And am I right in saying you've got over 100 employees now?
2: Just under 100. It's not something actually that... It's like our purpose in some way, our our values and culture. It's not something that previously we've ever really consciously gone out and analyzed and got and looked at in lots of detail it's almost like the conversation we we're just having about markets we've just gone out and done it mm-hmm. and actually when you look back at it and we are doing i think when you scale especially the 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 people that we have working here are very passionate about making sure that we don't lose that value and don't lose those cultures so you do have to do that work when you're of the size of 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 100 employees to make sure that if you've got an ambition to really scale that and scale that fast and bring lots of new people in everybody has to understand what the culture is and how we how we measure that uh, and how we how we make sure we maintain it so yeah we do have a a very um supportive culture supporting each other in encouragement not judging or a lot of the things hopefully that are seen through the brand and you may you may be touching on this later but but we recently took in, in outside investment for the first time from from bgf and i think when we when we sat down and we we had a really good session with 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 bgf and, and every member of staff and i think what came through is everybody welcomed that investment everybody welcomed the fact that um we had experienced people sitting alongside us to help really grow the business. But I think the message that came through strongly from everybody who was here is look, let's not lose what's special. We know, mm. and, and the, the, that's the other great thing about everybody working here. Because we've grown fast, everybody is open to change. Everybody realizes, hey, we need to change, but actually the benefits of change. The fact that when you start operating at another level, you need to change because you can't keep working the way you were. And expect to achieve the, the next level so everybody welcomed that but culture is that's what came through at the top of every of the list of everybody that when we took investment and sat down and talked about it that was the thing that that, that people really wanted to protect that culture that you talk about and actually if you do that what well, I always worried that you would lose it as you grew but actually what happens is it if you can imagine when, when we were really small nine or ten people if you had a couple of people who came in who were culturally were very very different that's twenty percent of your workforce, and that could be a big influence. Now, I think what happens is if you've got eighty people and a couple of people come in, it, it's really obvious because actually the majority are are of that of that culture of the yes. of the culture that, that that we want to maintain.
0: You. Are also a family business. You know, your wife Jo has been by your side as your co-founder. You've got three children and you've built the largest reusable nappy brand in the world. It's pretty inspiring stuff. Are your children showing any interest in the business? And do they get involved? Have you brought them along for the journey? Because it's something I talk a lot to this community about, which is, you know, as parents, what what happens when you've also got another child, which is your business, which tends to slightly cry a little bit more than the normal kid. Tell me about that.
2: I mean, so our eldest daughter is 26, youngest is 17, and we have a son that's in the middle of that age range. Have they been involved with in the business? Yeah, I mean, through, yeah, as children, they were, as babies, they were models. <laughs> um And depending on where they are in their, in, in, in their stage of life, they're proud to share some of the images that you can find online of them at other stages of their life, hugely embarrassed by that. They've worked on and off in, in the business in different aspects, but neither the older ones who are, who are both working now are, they're doing their own thing and doing, doing different things. I think, and why is that? I think when it's a husband and wife team and it is however much you try at certain times to try and separate, it's been part of our lives all the way through. Yeah. And I think they've seen the struggles as well as the good times. And yeah. I don't think it's certainly for one of them. It, it's, they don't want that. They de- definitely don't don't want that. I mean, there's aspects that you can see that of things they've learned and, and the ways that they operate that they see from the business. I also think that the, the nappy thing came from a passion and a vision that Joe and I had. Mm. And I think we want it to be mainstream. We want to reach as many people as possible. Quite understandably, why should our children have the same passion, vision, outlook? And actually, as we talked about, in terms of bringing skills into the business and act, and, and maximising the opportunity of reaching, getting reusable app, is reaching as many people as possible. There are certain skills that we need to drive that forward. I think it would be a complete fluke if if your children had the same, had the right things. Because we could... <laughs> we could start a business, we could get it to a certain level. And certainly that's um, since, and one of the reasons we, we brought us in investment is because we needed to bring new people in. We needed people to take it to the next level. And that is a specific skill. We have a skill to get it to a certain yes. point and actually to still be the voice and be out there um, shouting about the reasons why people should use your ears of an and is trying to grow the category and, and being great advocates for Bambina Mia. But in terms of that day to day, how do you make sure you can scale a business? That's a very specific skill, which I think you do get to the point where, and, and I know you will be able to quote me examples where entrepreneurs have been able to take it much, much further. But actually, my view is anyway, you get, take it as far as you can. And then actually you bring in those skills to help really real scale it because there are people out there who are very, very good at that.
0: I agree. I agree. Before we go, I want to ask you, the future, you've already mentioned it's to get as many people using as reusable nappies. You know, you are on that uh, mission. You've talked about raising funding. What though for you as a founder, I mean, I see that you are in the process of registering to become a B Corp, you know, Holly & Co Two. I think they've got a big backlog. It's absolutely been one long journey, which I hope is going to literally in the next couple of months come to an end. But tell me, is that, was that something very important for you to put into the business?
2: Yeah, so we started the B Corp process, um, probably like yourselves, a little while ago. But we never did B Corp because we wanted the B Corp badge. We did Mm. B Corp because we knew the sort of business that we wanted to be. And we were looking at all these areas and actually thought, why are we trying to sort of reinvent the wheel? There are structures out there that we can judge ourselves against. And B Corp was great to do that because it opened up lots of conversations that we hadn't thought about. We knew the sort of business we wanted to be. Same here. uh, But actually things we'd never considered. And actually B Corp can be in some areas quite broad brush and actually there's bits in B Corp where we think no that's not right for us as a business and actually it's not right for the sort of business we want to be and in our case to be more responsible to be more sustainable actually we have we we want to do it in a different way but what the B Corp process allowed us to do as I say is measure ourselves against a framework and that's what's been amazing for us.
0: It's quite fascinating and it's not an easy process but thank goodness it isn't in a way. Guy this has been Literally just fascinating. I now want to buy reusable nappies and find a child to put them in. So I will be doing that. (laughs) Um, Tell me at the end of um, my interviews, I use this analogy that building a business is like being on an epic roller coaster. Uh, Your cart would be full of nappies, you and Joe sitting in it. Tell me if that roller coaster, that cart hit the biggest low, what would you say that's been on your journey?
2: Um, I think the biggest low will be, which I talked about, 2010 when, when our turnover fell and actually everything we knew and every way of working didn't seem to be bringing it back. I remember at that time consciously thinking, and as, as I touched on it, ironically, it was sort of, I was awarded an MB in the middle of those, those difficult times. Um, And we had won other awards and, and there had been successes up to that point. And I remember thinking, if we can come back from this, that will be the, biggest achievement because actually it was it it was so hard at that time Mm. but you can now look back with hindsight and say actually what we managed to do then because of those really difficult times has led to the success that we've got yeah and we couldn't have done it without that yeah which is weird in some ways
0: i've had experiences my own life guy exactly the same and i think you're alongside many founders on this podcast who mentioned this. I really hope those listening really take note of that. Conversely, your greatest high?
2: I still get an amazing high from um, meeting people who use our products. And I have been lucky enough to travel the world to go to some amazing places. And I am I still, and it goes back to that idea, we were just so happy that people brought our products in the early days. I mean, I can quote you so many of them. I had a meeting with a senior person from the Canberra government, state government in Australia a little while ago. And I remember her starting the interview going, oh yeah, Bambino, yeah, we used your products. It was, they were great. And I still, that, the high you get from that, I don't think you'll ever lose. And I'd never want to lose that.
0: That's your fuel. That's your energy. Guy, I've asked you um, if you would do us the honour of writing a letter to your younger self. I don't know what you're going to say. Um, I don't know if you've ever done one of these before, but it would be wonderful to hand over to you.
2: When I read that and you, want, that you wanted me to do that, I thought, oh, what's this going to be like? Oh, it's going to be quite difficult. Uh, will I find time to do it? It's been the most amazing process writing this.
0: I'm so, so pleased. You're very polite. Some people swear and kick to do that letter. and they... <laughs> But then they say it's the nicest thing to do. So I really appreciate you sticking with it. And I hand over to you. I will try it.
2: And when I did write it and read it and jo- I sent it to Joe, and we both shed a tear. So I'm going to try and get through this without.
0: You um, would be with the majority if a tear did spring.
2: Right. Dear Guy, trust that you will find what you are looking for and have courage and belief in yourself. You are about to embark on the most amazing journey, both professionally and personally. You will make and find that business that you want to create, build and believe in. It will be a long and very bumpy road, but follow your childhood passions and entrepreneurial drive. Constantly push yourself and try new things. Take every opportunity and enjoy the ups and downs of the business roller coaster. You will make mistakes, but that's okay. What seems like the greatest challenges, the lowest points on this journey, will be your greatest opportunities to learn some of the best lessons and will enable you to grow not only your business, but grow as a person. As you grow your business, remember, stay focused, avoid complexities and keep things simple. Be true and honest to yourself and others. Be ambitious. Remember dad's favorite quote, A man's reach should exceed his grasp. Take advice, but trust your instinct. You are normally right. Pick your battles and be reflective in your responses. Most of all, have fun. Spend huge amounts of time with your wonderful family and friends. And never forget, it's about the journey. The most amazing journey and everything that that entails enjoy every moment of it. And just remember, Guy, everything will be okay. Never lose your optimism and you'll catch up with me soon from your older, wiser self. P.S. Should you ever find yourself one bright, late September afternoon on 79 runs playing cricket against Ashton Cricket Club, don't try and hit the ball out the ground and get caught on the boundary. On this occasion, be patient. Take your time. And you may, at one point in your life, and much to everyone's amazement, produce an innings of a hundred runs. Oh, and one final thing you can do for me. When you propose to the most important and supportive person in your life, who will be there through the good times and the bad, don't do what I did. Please make it special.
0: (laughs) Gosh, Guy, what a journey you've had. And with Joe. And if you go back 30 years after that surreal conversation you two at the Taj Mahal talking about the least most unexpected thing that you thought you were going to talk about, nappies, and look what you've achieved, look what the two of you have achieved. And I think a lot of us don't really take that moment to say not only have you built an incredible brand that is actually changing the way that we're consuming and you are positively impacting the world, but you've also brought up three children. You've kept your marriage through ups and downs. And believe you me, I I understand that. I really admire you and your tenacity and your determination. And I really look forward actually to what the next 30 years is going to bring. It's gonna be quite an amazing ride and one I know you'll look back at and think, my goodness, we did that. And uh, it's been a beautiful conversation today, Guy. Thank you. Thank you. Before you go, don't forget to head to adobe.com go slash Holly Tucker to find out how Adobe Express can fuel creativity in your business. And if you've enjoyed this episode, if it's helped you along your journey or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support means the world to me. It really does spread the word and will help inspire even more people to build a life they love. And if you want to hear all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co.